This is. This. This is. Refracted. Refracted reality. I'm Eric Jacobson. I'm Paul Butler. I'm Albert Borkman. I'm Pamela Butler. My name is Arthur Boers. I'm Josh Kloss. And this is Refracted Reality. On this episode, it's all about space and place. And we're going to meet a family that lives not in your typical home. I think that everyone we tell that we live in a church, their first response is, that'd be so cool. You know, like everyone, we haven't met anyone who's like, that's weird. You know, like, oh, I've always wanted to do that, or I've always wondered what that would be like. Um, But it's not quite like what people think. Churches have very little storage. It's difficult to ensure it. One of the disadvantages of the stained glass windows is that you don't receive direct sunlight during the day. Yes, the windows are amazing, but when it's minus 10 degrees outside and a wind from the north, and that's just blowing through, the old stained glass, you know, it's not quite as charming anymore. Our backyard is weird shaped because of property lines. The eaves are open in places, so we have squirrels that live up there. Yes, we have to evict the critters. I mean, we call ourselves the swallow's nest, but um, we didn't necessarily mean it literally. Oh, by the way, that comes from Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. So even the swallows make a nest and the sparrows a home, even in your altars. So that's us. We're the little swallows making a little nest in um, the church. That's Pamela. I am Pamela Butler. And her husband, Paul. I'm Paul Butler. And as you heard, they live in a church. But it hasn't always been that way. They used to live on the south side of Chicago. In 2010, I lost my job. And um, we, at that, con- at that time, had been living in Chicago and needed to find more affordable housing. And uh, Pamela had family in the area. Uh, we had some good friends that lived just the next town over. And at the time, we were going to church in Aurora. So we kind of drew this triangle on the map and went to one of the real estate sites and, and put in, show us anything $30,000 or less, or $40,000 or less. Um, and there were a handful of returns. And so we made arrangements with a variety of those realtors and kind of hit all five in one day. And um, the very first place we came was this church. So it was a hot August day, and um, we, we started here and this is it's a church after having seen this place and seeing some of its potential when you walk into a house that is really cute arts and crafts but the rooms are tiny you're like wow we could get like 10 people in here max and it just you know and it wasn't a church we kept coming back to that so yeah this is cute but it's not a church i mean it's like all of a sudden everything was being measured by this place even though this was going to require the most work. We just kept looking at the potential, the potential that was here to um, redeem a space and to transform um, it into a thing of beauty was something that we just couldn't let go of. When we bought the church, the bell was inoperable. 
In fact, the, the rope wasn't even attached to it anymore. So just up in the steeple, we knew there was a bell. Um, and so we were hosting a New Year's party. So this would have been a month and a half after we bought the place. And basically all we had done is cleaned it out. We hadn't really done any work um, to the place other than we were working on the bathroom. And um, I found the rope in a little closet or a little cabinet in the front entryway. And um, I went up to the bell and it was frozen. It wouldn't turn. But underneath there's a um, mechanical kind of hammer that you can push down on and it'll strike the bell instead of the bell swinging. So I hooked up the rope to that and dangled it over the front of the of the church to hang it so that we could pull from down below because we wanted to ring in the new year. And um, Pamela, um, this is one of the differences between, you know, between the two of us. is Between man and wife? Well, I was going to say between man and wife, but between, you know, it's not always in this way, you know, but there, there are differences, right? So I, I'm more of the, let's just get it working. It doesn't really matter what it looks like. Whereas Pamela... Can we make it look a little nicer than that? <laughs> so, you know, I have the rope dangling out the front of the church and, and, and Pamela's like, I, I don't know. It, it just doesn't look very, very nice. So I was starting, I went back up into the bell tower and was trying to run the rope from that hammer down into the cavity here or the front entryway. And um, as I was coming back down the ladder, all of a sudden the bell gave way and started swinging. So then I was able to actually hook the bell up the way that it was supposed to be hooked up. And um, we got to ring in the new year. Her neighbor told us later how meaningful that was for her to hear the bell ringing and um, she says it brought tears to her eyes, you know, that, the, that here was one little element of the church that had been frozen and no longer available to give beauty that was now once again doing what it was intended to do. If you're like me, you probably subconsciously divide church buildings into two categories. There's what could be called the modern church building, which is typically on a large piece of land with a huge parking lot surrounding it. And then there's what could be called the classic church building, which is typically located on a standard city block with a small or non-existent parking lot. I'm Eric Jacobson, and I am the senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Tacoma, Washington and also an author of a couple of books on the intersection between Christian theology and the built environment. Eric has often pastored churches, so it would fall into that classic definition. If you've seen the movie A River Runs Through It, which tells the story of Paul and Norman McLean, then you've seen one of the churches that Eric has pastored. It was a classic uh, looking at church building. Um, you know, with a, with, a, with a peaked roof and a, and a cross and um, a, a square bell tower. Um, and so it was, it was what I sometimes call an embedded church in that it, it, um, it, it 
it, it's embedded right in the middle of a neighborhood. So it was surrounded by homes and uh, some businesses, um, some coffee shop and, and uh, a bakery and some, and some stores like that. And so it was sort of embedded in that way. You know, I think as much as I, I recognize that um, the church is more about the people, it is more a dynamic word, um, and it didn't originally refer just to a building. Um, I do think that church buildings do have a significant role to play in our communities. Um, they, they have a symbolic importance. They oftentimes have go deep into our history, uh, tend to be some of the older buildings in our communities. And I think it's important uh, you know, that buildings hold memories. The, the weird thing that, that has emerged in our culture um, in the post-war development era is what we sometimes call placeless places. And so they're not spaces, they're filled up with something, but they're also not places in that they're, they don't hold our memories very well. And by that I'm thinking about huge box retail stores, you know, like the Walmarts and the Home Depots and those kinds of things. They, they're not spaces, they're filled with merchandise and, and they're, they take up physical space. But they also don't hold our memories very well because you, you look at a, 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 a line of those stores all lined up, you know, the Petco next to the Target, next to the, you know, Sports Authority and all that. And if you look at those, you know, in the right frame, you really can't tell what city you happen to be in, unless you can see mountains in the background or any other geographical feature. But it's, it's, it's so we call that placelessness. It's, it's not a space and it's not a place. It's sort of this weird um, thing that's clutter, seems to clutter our lives without enriching our lives or giving us meaning to our daily lives. A lot of modern construction is not built to last, you know, over a hundred years. The church is 150 years old. It was built during the Civil War. It's more, you know, for 20, 30 years, and it's replaced by something else. And so the concern there culturally is that we lose that sense of place. We lose that sense of cultural memory. People have come and gone um, from this place. And one of the fun things about living here is the occasional note from someone, hey, I used to go to church there. You know, in older cities and in neighborhoods with churches that are older, you can take your kids and your grandkids to those significant places and tell stories of your life that are attached to those buildings. We've got one lady in particular whose mom grew up in this church who has sent us pictures from her mom's things um, as she's been going through them and sending them to us occasionally. Uh, where we see what the church has looked like in the 40s, what it looked like in the early 1900s, even some before. One of the things that she sent us was a transcription of a, a presentation given at the last church service, which was May 1st, 1983. And so um, it's three pages of um, the story of the church and not just the building, but the people who met here. Stories of your life that are attached to those buildings. And the people who came and, and left, and the missionaries that came from this church. But one of the things at the end of the history that really spoke to me... And tell stories of your life that are attached to those buildings. Whoever it was that wrote it and gave it at the service says, in closing, I'm not afraid for our building. 
For I believe the day will come when the spirit of those who worshiped within its doors will cause the doors to open again and the bell to call God's children to worship. So we shall leave it in his hands. Those words ring true, that the doors have reopened and God's Spirit is at work through this place and we are humbled and honored to be a part of that. One of the unique things about moving into a small community and living in the church is that there is a certain responsibility that we feel to not just make it our home, but it, it is still an important place in the community. And so we do um, want to respect the, the history of the building and of the place and not just, well, it's our home, people can deal with it. It is difficult to decorate. Um, the windows are so wonderful, you don't want to detract from them. So you have to find something that is going to complement them without overwhelming it. And when I look at the blank expanses of these um, acoustical tile walls, which are not attractive, uh, I want to put something on the walls, but there's just nothing, there's very little that actually is appropriate. Now, one of the really neat things actually that I like is the sunflower painting that we have. Paul's grandmother painted that. And unbeknownst to us, it, it complements the colors in the windows beautifully. It is um, a neutral enough subject that it blends, it doesn't compete for attention. And so um, it, it works perfectly. But I learned pretty early on in living here that certain things do not belong on the wall. And my mom uh, went to school in Chicago for dress design. She had some fashion plates left over from her assignments that she had done. I always loved them. I had them framed and they hung in our walls in Chicago and it was perfect. I, I love them. Well, they're not on the walls up here because it is about as jarring of a contrast as you can imagine. These young women with mini skirts on <laughs> in, um, framed in a very um, sleek, modern, uh, brushed nickel kind of uh, frame hanging between these art glass pieces from 1920. So I had to put those away and I still don't have the perfect spot for them yet. But um, yeah, I learned early on that it's limited what we can make work on the walls. I suppose that's the case in anybody's house, though, really. One of our commitments is that we don't want to divide the main space, that we want to leave it open. So, you know, we have a little living room set up in one area, we have dining in another area. Our, 
you know, our computing stations are kind of off to the edges, that we don't want to divide it, that the space needs to remain open to, um, to really appreciate the beauty of what's here. When we were living in Chicago, there was a church that was bought up and it was subdivided into condominiums which is fine. The building looks great. It's still there. It's an old building. It's a nod to the past, but it's not, it doesn't retain the heart of the building itself. So um, we want to maintain the heart of the building itself and its function. And that's why, as Paul said, we don't want to subdivide anything. It wouldn't look right to begin with, but it just, it's not, it isn't right. It's, it's not um, the heart of the the building and its purpose. As I was talking with Paul and Pamela, I kept thinking about how their home is a focal reality. Focal realities are an idea that I read about in a book by Arthur Bors. So this is an idea that's not original to me. It comes from the philosopher named Albert Borgman. I'm Albert Borgman, and I'm a Regents Professor of Philosophy at the University of Montana. And he talks a lot about the hearth, heart with T-H, and the importance in previous times of hearths for family life, for centering a whole household. Focal comes from Latin focus, which means hearth, the point where the heat and the light are gathered. And when I read this, this immediately made sense to me because when I was a teenager and a child, I often visited family in the Netherlands, and most of the people that I visited didn't have central heating. And they had a hearth in the main room downstairs. The main room was often a combination of a living room and a dining room. And it wasn't a fireplace. You didn't feed wood into it. It was fed by some sort of fuel. But it was the only place in the house that was regularly heated. And so everything happened there in the cold, damp months, of which there were many in the Netherlands. And so you ate your meals there, played games there, did homework there maybe watched TV there, visited there, and um, you stayed in those rooms until it was time to go to bed, and then you scrambled up very quickly to go to bed with a hot water bottle or something and scurried under the sheets try- trying to warm up. But um, So that was quite a literal fulfillment of a how, how a hearth could bring people together. The hearth was the most important center of the house, and Therefore, uh, focal things are in analogy to the hearth, things that center our lives, that are the most important thing in our lives. One of the ways that I learned to understand and appreciate the kitchen was when I started reading Albert Borgman, I realized that the kitchen was actually a focal place that uh, drew us together in, in very significant ways. This is the last room of the house, and this is the kitchen. And it's um, right now we've been just trying to kind of make do until we can get the kitchen redone. So um, we actually we don't have hot water in the kitchen. We heat all of our water on the stove. You know, these cabinets are built right up against kind of open earth behind it. So it's it's really the space that will require the most kind of updating. Um, to, to take that next step forward. In one of the houses that we lived in for a number of years, we were finding that the kitchen wasn't working very well for us. And there were, there were a number of problems, but the biggest problem really was that it was a very small 
kitchen, and when my wife and I tried to cook together, we would bump into each other quite a bit and get in each other's way. It was hard to work together. My wife started lobbying for uh, kitchen remodeling quite early on, and I was reluctant, mostly because it's a fairly expensive process. We found an old electric stove from the 50s that just kind of fits the space. And, um, you know, it's a double oven, so it allows us to um, be able to prepare enough food when we have people here. And, um, you know, it, it is one of the strange things about our having the church is that um, we do have a church that meets here each week, Sunday mornings. We have the hymn sings and then um, just a lot of people coming in and out. And so um, we really are just trying to be faithful with the little that we have and pray that someday we can upgrade and uh, have all the more to share with our neighbors and friends. But eventually I saw that she had a point and we we were able to expand the kitchen by opening up a wall and using a room that was essentially unused before. And so we had a big spacious kitchen with lots of natural light and beautiful wood. It was redone by a person in our congregation. So we felt like we had a personal connection as well to the remodeling and that was meaningful to us. And then to my surprise, what I discovered was that we didn't just have a nicer looking room and an improved house, but in a number of ways, the kitchen changed dynamics within the family. In any home where you have an active kitchen, it does become a central hub for some of the relationship of people that come in, in and out of your home. We saw that the children liked hanging around in the kitchen. They would come home from school when my wife or I were working in the kitchen preparing supper and the children would sit at the table and do their homework and chat with us and visit with us in a way that really hadn't happened before. And after supper as well, we noticed that they liked hanging around after the meal. They stayed and lingered at the table for quite a while for more conversation and visiting and catching up. And so we realized the difference that a central room can make in family life. We also found that it was a lot more fun and a lot easier to host guests. So we had more company over and we had fun meals together. And so um, in retrospect, what I realized, a project that I thought was expensive and maybe just a middle-class luxury, I realized that it was really crucial to our family life and our hospitality. On a Sunday, um, the kitchen is often a place where um, Pamela and some of the other ladies will be gathering to get food ready for lunch, but it's also where a lot of important conversation is happening. Um, or when the kids are helping doing to do the dishes afterwards, that they're all there working together, but it's not just about the task. There's a lot of relationship that goes on there too. And so to have a space that is not only more practical for getting the dishes done and preparing the food and doing so safely for those that have food allergies, but also a place that people feel welcome to hang out and to um, have some of those opportunities for life-on-life -life kind of experiences in a comfortable setting as opposed to, do I need a tetanus shot to continue to uh, help you here as you prepare for your meal? And I realized that the kitchen was actually a focal place that it drew us together in in very significant ways. A focal thing 
in our culture can be lots of things. For a cook, it's the stove and then everything that belongs to it and the environment in which it sits. So the pots, the pans, the fire, of course, and the kitchen. For someone who is devoted to music, it would be the instrument, a violin, say. Uh, for someone who loves the wild waters of uh, Montana, it might be a kayak. And then, of course, the kayak in the white water, say. Uh, for someone who likes to ski, it's the skis. So there's a great variety of things, and I think that's a welcome feature of folklore things and practices. Uh, Borgman says that we can recognize folklore realities by three kinds of dynamics. And he says the first dynamic of focal things or places or practices, the first dynamic is that they have a commanding presence. And what he means by that is that they somehow make demands on us, they somehow seem larger than us, they somehow remind us of something that is bigger than ourselves, they may take discipline, they may take exercise, they may take time. As a child, I had a sense of pageantry. I was on the flag team, such as it existed in our small town, the flag rippling through the wind and all that. When I was at Moody and I needed a music internship, the uh, church that came to me, essentially, was an Episcopal church, which was totally outside of uh, any frame of reference for me or for my family. But um, given that he was a professor from Moody, and the, the, the priest there at the Episcopal Church uh, claimed to be an evangelical, there was um, safety in my mind as far as that was concerned uh, to reach out beyond what I had been familiar with. So this gave me an opportunity to experience a tradition I had not experienced before, and it opened my eyes to, um, to a world that fascinated me, delighted me, uh, enriched my life, uh, understanding that you know, there's symbolism behind the colors. There's there's more to the church calendar than Christmas and Easter. There's all of that in between, and there's there's structure and there's beauty and and um, so all of this uh, factoring into um, my outlook on what is beautiful. My heart has already always been wooed by the church, I guess. So when there's a building that is like this and there's stained glass windows, something that my Baptist church didn't have, um, but it was just beautiful. It just, it felt natural. It felt like just slipping my hand into a glove and this is um, a very natural place t for me to end up living. The second aspect of focal realities is that they connect us with other people very well at, at many different levels. The fact that it so easily lends itself to um, communing with friends is uh, also a very good fit. So those are the things that we remind ourselves of when we are cold on a cold winter's day or, you know, just when there's termites coming out of who knows where in the kitchen. <laughs> It's just reminding you, saying, you know, this is, but it's, it's, it's not just that. It, 
we did definitely have a sense of um, kingdom building work when we moved in. This was a building that had once been filled with glory um, of worshiping saints and it had um, been neglected. It was falling apart and it needed uh, intervention somehow. And we just felt like um, God was saying, well, you're the people to do it. And the third aspect of focal realities is that they have what he calls centering orienting or orienting power. And what he means by that is that they remind us of what's most important. They teach us what's most important. The, the very first morning, like so we bought it and stayed the night. And that morning, with the sun streaming through the stained glass windows, we were all sleeping on the stage on air mattresses, is a morning that is forever burned in my memory. The waking up to sun through stained glass windows was just amazing. I can't think of a, of a better word than... Um, it just the it spoke to me of the um, the beauty of light and color and that we had something truly special even though we may spend the rest of our lives trying to make it what the potential is we've got all sorts of dreams for this place but it's just going to take time in some days it's like that waking up with the light through the stained glass of just, this is so cool. And then there are other days where it's, Dad, can we just live in a real house? Um, and that's the, we live in that tension between the amazing and the, when is it going to be right? Refracted Reality is Pete Campbell, Chris Burdick, Matt Tully, and me, Josh Kloss. To learn more, visit our website at refractedreality.com. There, you'll find additional content related to this episode, more information about the podcast, and you can drop us a note and let us know what you think. That's refractedreality.com. Next time on Refracted Reality... The dinner is sort of a, a reenaction in the minor key of the Eucharist. And so we should celebrate it every, every evening. It's all about food. Join us on June 15th for episode 2.